I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is one of my favorite humans on the planet. The first time I heard Lynn Twist speak in her Wisdom 2.0 speech, I wept. I couldn't hold my tears. She is a fundraiser extraordinaire. She's a consultant, an executive coach, a global activist, and the author of the widely acclaimed book, and one of my favorite books, The Soul of Money. Lynn is the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, a founder of the Soul of Money Institute. For over 40 years, she has been recognized as a global visionary committed to alleviating poverty and hunger and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. From working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, to refugee camps in Ethiopia, to the threatened rainforest in the Amazon, Lynn is always trying to make our world a better place. Her field work has brought her a deep understanding of the social tapestry of the world and the historical landscape of the times we're living in. Lynn works closely with the Nobel Women's Institute. She's on the board of Conscious Capitalism. She's on the advisory board of Women's Earth Alliance and is a member of the Conscious Leadership Guild. I am so honored to have such an incredible being talking to us today. Lynn, thank you so much for being here. Hello. Ah, there you are. I am your biggest fan on the planet. You are? I am, my God. So the first time I saw your video on Wisdom 2.0, I literally cried. Like I literally was weeping like a baby. Where do I begin? How does one become you? What was your story? When did you begin to want to make a difference? How did you end up traveling to all of those places, meeting all those people? Well, there's several flashpoints and, you know, or kind of pivots in one's life, I believe. Things happen, divine choreography kind of joins with your life and then you see things you didn't see. But I'd say my first revelation was when my father died when I was 13. He was a musician, a very wonderful, ebullient, charismatic band leader in the big band era. And he had an orchestra and a band. And the big band days were kind of over when television came in. But he was still just a very charismatic, at least in my world, he was sort of my hero. He hung the moon, you know what I mean? And I played the piano and sing and dance and everything. And I was, well, there's four of us, four children. And he was 50. He had his 50th birthday. And then we'd had a kind of a wonderful weekend, all of us. And we all went to bed on a Sunday night. And the next morning, we all woke up except for him. He died of a heart attack in his sleep. No warning, no struggle, just died. And my mother was in her mid-40s. And it was such a shock. And he was a famous person. So my mother was totally consumed with fans and the band, uh, all the 36-piece band and the press. 
so the four of us, our four kids, I'm the third of four, we were kind of shocked and horrified and she was overwhelmed and we were raised as Catholics and I turned to my Sunday school teacher who was a nun when we went to public school. This is in the Midwest in Chicago in Evanston, Illinois. And I loved my Sunday school teacher, Sister Benjamin, I'll never forget her. And she sort of just got me through my father's death because I was, I just couldn't believe my father was dead. It was impossible. I mean, I had never experienced death. We had such a a vibrant life. And I was sort of the musical one. I mean, everyone played instruments, but I was the promising one. So I was very much of, I don't know if I was his favorite, but he was my favorite. (laughs) When he died, I thought it was the end of the world. And my Sunday school teacher, Sister Benjamin, she just sort of took me in and got me through it, I would say. And I became very religious as a result. And I was a very popular kid in high school, public high school. I was homecoming queen and cheerleader and all those things and president of everything. And I would tell my friends that I was going to see my grandmother and I would go to a retreat center and pray. And I got a very powerful inner life, I would call it now. I didn't know it then. I thought it was being religious because I thought it was my fault that my father died. You know, a child often thinks that no matter what, you know, the circumstances, you kind of think it must be my fault. And Catholic Catholicism builds a lot of guilt into your... Yeah. <laughs> so it was a silent religious pursuit. I didn't tell my friends. I started going to mass every day before school at 5 a.m. And then I would come back and get dressed for school and get ready for carpool. And no one knew I was doing this. So it was kind of my secret life. And I think that was a really kind of great thing. Like your son... My father's death gave me something that I don't know I would have had, a very deep connection with my soul, I'll say, out of grief and sadness and and actually guilt initially. But something about it built a very deep inner life for me, and I would have called it then religion, but I'm not a Catholic any longer, but I certainly learned about that inner core, the source. Fast forward to, I got married to a wonderful, wonderful man to whom I'm still married for 53 years, Bill Twist, my hero. Wow. And I was went to Stanford, and after we got married and started our lives and started having kids, I got involved with Buckminster Fuller, the great, I wrote about this in my book, the great humanist. He was an engineer like you and an architect, and uh, Buckminster Fuller was a really brilliant man, and I studied with him, not studies the wrong word because I didn't really understand what he was saying. You would have understood it, but (laughs) he was a beautiful human being and I loved him. And I was a kind of a follower, you could say. At the same time, I was also a graduate of the EST training. Are you familiar with that? Werner Erhard's work? What is that? It's called Landmark now, Landmark Education. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Landmark, of course, yeah. But its predecessor was called EST, E-S-T. In the early days of EST, I was involved with EST and Werner Erhard, who founded it. And I made a decision that Werner Erhard and Buckminster Fuller needed to meet. And if they met, a miracle would happen. So along with a friend, a man named Ron Landsman, we orchestrated through a series of wonderful, lucky events. Buckminster Fuller, the great humanist, he invented the geodesic dome. He was just a brilliant, brilliant man. He was a called the grandfather of the future. The two of them, they met and we orchestrated this meeting. And out of that meeting with Werner Erhard, a a human potential kind of master and Buckminster Fuller, a a really remarkable, he could say, I don't know how to talk about Bucky, but he was just a brilliant 
he saw things that nobody saw. The Hunger Project was born, and the Hunger Project was a commitment to end world hunger. And that swept me off my feet. I thought, oh, if I can participate in ending world hunger, my life would really be worth living. And so I got completely and totally devoted to the Hunger Project, which ended up being called the Hunger Project. And I became one of the leaders of the Hunger Project, and we built a worldwide movement to end world hunger over many, many years and decades. And so that took me to India to work with Mother Teresa, it took me to Ethiopia, the story I told about the women there, it took me to Bangladesh and Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau and Gambia and Ghana and Senegal, et cetera, et cetera, all over the world, especially uh, Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And then at the same time, I was responsible for fundraising all over the world. So I was responsible for fundraising in Japan and Korea and China and France and Germany and everywhere. So I, I had a big job. <laughs> I was sort of person managing a huge, very sizable and powerful volunteer network for the Hunger Project of volunteers and then fundraisers. And I had three children, so it was very, very difficult and challenging. Managing all of that. And Bill was a successful business guy, and I'm trying to get back from Ethiopia in time for the soccer championship or the spring sing. You know, just managing all of that was like, ah, but somehow. I did it, and our, my children got very involved in ending world hunger, and when other families would go on vacation to Disneyland or Aspen, we would go to Micronesia, uh, or we would go to Bangladesh, or we would go to Zimbabwe. So my children and Bill, they really joined me, and they became real, all grew up as global citizens, speaking many languages, and feeling comfortable almost anywhere in the world. And Bill was so generous about that because that was my beat, kind of. That was my neighborhood, too. Yeah. When they had spring break, we'd be in the Philippines or Indonesia or somewhere where I had either work or connections. And that created a very rich life for them, but then I was gone a lot, too. So that was a challenging part of my life. But the Hunger Project taught me about people and money. The Hunger Project taught me that, as I probably said in the talk, I can't remember which talk is which, but that I learned so much from people that I used to label as poor. Would you mind sharing this with my listeners? So not everybody may have had the joy of listening to that story. And that story touched me so deeply, so deeply. So let's remember the story about Ethiopia and going back, I think you said to New York and the difference yeah. between your labeling. Right. Would you mind telling us that? Yeah, I would be happy to do that. I'll first say that my teachings about money did not come from finance or business school or economics. My teachings about money came from human beings struggling in situations that most of us would name the people poor. But if you really, as you know, probably work side by side with people that most of us would call poor, you find out there's nothing poor about them, that they are resilient and incredibly creative and incredibly strong in their inner core and their inner life. And that mm -hmm. They have hopes and dreams, and they're not poor. Their circumstances are poor, but they're not poor. In fact, they're some of the most courageous people I've ever known, and I learned so much from them. Totally. I would even say their circumstances are financially poor, but that they actually enjoy a wealth of living connections and love and family and endurance and resilience. And they're so wealthy and all of those other things that sadly, because of finance, we don't label as rich. Yeah. And they're not distracted the way we are by the money game. 
they're not even included in it. So <laughs> they actually pay attention to the things that really make us happy. Our relationship with the earth, our relationship with one another, our love for community, our love for music and dance. And especially I think about the women in Africa that live in just horrendous circumstances and somehow are just filled with joy. It's just... It blows you away. Yeah. Every single time. Yeah. And I also, because I was fundraising, and when you're fundraising, you're looking for people that most people would call rich. And my responsibilities to raise millions and millions of dollars for ending world hunger, I had the privilege of working with many people of enormous wealth and moderate wealth. But that work had me see how trapped they were in the money game, how I could help them relieve them not of their money so much, but of the trap. And so I developed a lot of what we now call the soul of money principles as principles of fundraising from the heart, working with people with integrity and giving them a reason and a power that they didn't realize was available through the accumulation of resources. And not charity, I don't use the word charity, I really am trying to abolish charity, but transform it to solidarity, to be in total solidarity in co-equal partnership with people who have perhaps less financial resources but have incredible other strengths that people with wealth often don't have because they haven't needed to develop them so that we can see each other as co-equal partners in making the world we want. So that's kind of a background to the story I think you want me to tell that I was fortunate, really fortunate to be in Ethiopia after the famine in 1984-1985, which was one of the most horrific famines in history. A million people starved to death in the Rift Valley of Ethiopia. And that famine was super tragic. At the same time, it woke up the world. That was when the uh, very powerful initiative called We Are the World took place. Yeah, Life Aid and We Are the World. Yeah, I was very involved in all of that. After the that famine, I was in Ethiopia with some of the women who had lost every one of their children to starvation, not just hunger, not just malabsorptive hunger, but they starved to death, their kids, their children. It's, it's almost incomprehensible for a mother or father can imagine that you could not feed your child and they would die in your arms. And there were seven women in this setting in Ifat Tanuga, part of Ethiopia, where many people had died in this rift valley. And I was with seven Ethiopian mothers who had lost all of their children, 100% of their children. And it's not like they had one or two. One of them had 11 children. Oh. Uh, and the one that had the fewest children had five. And they were mothers that invited me, I can't comprehend why, but they did invite me to join them in their grieving process, which is a almost a formal, cathartic a ritual that I was part of for five days and five nights. And each mother shared in real detail the excruciating death of each one of her children. One by one, we would hear the story of little Malika, or Mohammed, who was 13, who walked towards a mirage thinking there was water and then collapsed out of exhaustion and hunger. And then when she went to get him and he was dead or Malika who was nursing at the breast of her mother and her mother had no more water, hadn't had water in seven days, had no milk. And the baby was so weak that it stopped suckling and then died, you know, just horrible, horrible 
excruciating detailed descriptions of the life of the child and then their death so that you felt their spirit right there, the child that had lost. And after the description of each child, we would be in tears anyway, but then we would wail, which was part of their tradition, like and keen and scream. And we were sitting around a dry well. It was very dramatic and very, very exhausting and powerful and tragic, but so powerful somehow. And after each child, we would keen and wail and then start the next story. And it went on and on day and night until we were done, until we had honored every single life. And at the end of that process, each woman made a commitment and you couldn't tell how old these women were, but I, I would say they were in their 40s, but they looked, you know, like they were 90 because they were so, so thin. And so they'd been through so much, but I think they were fairly young. And they committed each one of them individually and to each other and to me because I was white and from the United States, I had a particular gift of being a, a witness to them that was important to them. They made a promise that they would live their life in a way that would do everything they could to get educated and play a role in making sure no mother went through that horror again. And it was really awesome because they didn't need to do that. You know, they could have taken their own lives because a childless mother in Ethiopia has no status. That's not something you want to be. And their husbands had long since abandoned them. So they didn't even talk about fathers. They weren't even in the picture. So I was so moved by their commitment, by the process. I was just like, oh, you can imagine this talking about it makes me all turmoil again. Um, I left them and they were all women that I now knew better than I knew some of my best friends because of that process. So then I had an appointment in New York to meet with Investment Club (laughs) in New York City, a very fancy, wealthy investment circle of women and I had a commitment to go talk to them about money, soul of money, work. That's the name of the book. And when I got there, it was a very, very fancy Fifth Avenue apartment. And the women were gorgeous and manicured and made up and perfect everything and designer clothes and very opulent. They were all married to kind of merger acquisition, kind of Wall Street kind of guys And they had an investment club and they were learning about investing on their own and they wanted me to do a talk. And I couldn't, I don't know anything about investing, number one, so I don't know why they called me. But anyway, it was a divine appointment because I couldn't talk about anything but what had just occurred, what I had just witnessed. There was nothing else. I couldn't say anything else. I just spilled over and told them about the women in Ethiopia. And it was a game changer. It was life-altering for them. It was life-altering for me. And even the story of it, the fresh, just raw sharing of it, it really reached into their gut. And they wanted to find a way to partner with those women. And it was just a beautiful coincidence that seven in Ethiopia and seven in New York. And it became clear to me that partnering them was the thing to do next, but not like the rich women had to feel sorry for the women in Ethiopia and help them out. No. It's probably the other way around. Yeah. The strength and resolve and traditions and generosity of spirit and deep inner life of the women in Ethiopia was such a powerful asset, series of assets, a collection of enormous assets 
that these women in New York lacked. And these women in New York had influence and money and, you know, helicopters and connections and could travel anywhere they wanted. And they had huge assets and well-educated. And these were assets. And these assets and these assets coming together could make a really big difference for ending world hunger. Not haves and have-nots, but haves. Everybody had a lot to contribute. And so I put them together in co-equal partnership as peers. And that was a huge part of what I learned that there, really. I mean, pity and feeling sorry for and all of that that's sort of associated with charity doesn't really produce the result you want it to. You relieve your own suffering if you're the giver rather than the suffering of the person you're helping often. And so I really started to see that. Working with Mother Teresa was such a teaching for me, and she was charitable. But that's the kind of final chapter of the 20th century of charity. I think now 21st century is solidarity. It's just different context. And that experience in Ethiopia was in the 90s. So it was 80s and 90s. It was my first really recognition of the enormous assets of people we call poor, that the people we call rich are craving and going to workshop after workshop for. Yeah. And the people that we call rich have enormous contributions to make too, but it's way beyond what they think. It's in the receiving and the witnessing. So anyway, those two came together, those two groups, and it was for years. And really, we worked together for years. It was so awesome. And the people in New York, the women in New York, they brought their children to Ethiopia. It gave them an education of a lifetime in ways that they couldn't have ever gotten at Groton or Harvard or Stanford. And the women of Ethiopia were able, with the partnership of the women in New York, to go all the way through school. They had never been educated. They didn't know how to read or write. All the way through school, from what we would call in the United States, kindergarten, all the way through high school, then college. And of the seven, I lost track of three, actually. But three of them got PhDs. And the fourth became an attorney. And the attorney runs a a law firm defending women's rights in Ethiopia, the largest law firm, women-owned law firm in Ethiopia, and three of the PhDs, one runs an international science institute in Ethiopia, and two of them were ministers in the government. I don't know if they're ministers in this government, but uh, they were ministers in government. So it just like blew our mind that these women that were thin and couldn't read and were practically on death's door and seemed so weak have become some of the most powerful leaders of their country. And it was such a gift to me to see that. And the women in New York became effective and a powerful philanthropists and activists for ending world hunger and the empowerment of women and girls. So it was, it was a miracle. It really is when you think about it's a miracle both ways because I work on happiness. My whole life is dedicated to happiness. And happiness is actually more found in places where there is comfort, where there is everything that we need. You know, you go to the poorest places of Latin America or you go to the poorest places in Bangladesh or in Africa and there are smiles from cheek to cheek and people are loving and hugging and appreciating everything that life gives them. And that kind of education is what we need in the part of the world where we have everything, but we just are unable to find happiness as a result. I have endless questions to ask you. So I'll I'll start with one that is really dear to my heart. So you're an example for a woman 
that actually made a massive difference. This is what I call success. And you did that with your empathy, with your ability to deep into your feminine side and connect to people and find those emotions that sometimes in the business world are considered taboo, that they shouldn't be shown, they shouldn't be felt. You know, you're supposed to pull yourself together and go to the investment club and do what you're told and talk about ROI and about PLs and all of the stuff that we're taught to talk about. What would you say? Because one of the things I fight for very strongly is I believe that our world needs not only women. I don't want to call it women. I want to call it the feminine in leadership. But we need the feminine to act feminine to find that side of us that can actually find that connection, that can actually find the emotion, the love, the tear, the sadness. How can we change that? Well, that's a wonderful topic. That's my next book. So, <laughs> Is it? I did not know that, guys. Everyone listening, I did not know that. Tell me about well, it. I'm working on that right now because my view is that this century, the 21st century, is the Sophia century. And I call it that because Sophia evokes women and also the feminine archetype that is wanting to be fully expressed on this planet now. The 20th century was dominated by war and the fear of war, and hundreds of millions of people were killed or became killers. And it was a very a domineering century. And you could say very patriarchal, very violent the 21st century, although we're not starting so gently, but it's the first century of the third millennium. That's how I like to look at it. Uh, Buckminster Fuller taught me to look in long swaths of time. And it is the, for only 20 years into the third millennium is another way of looking at where we are. And you and I are having this conversation in 2020 in the midst of pandemic that could be as tragic as the suffering is especially for people who have, don't have access to good health care or are unhealthy when the pandemic hits them. The pandemic is an ally, I think, for a culture that needs to reflect, reset, reimagine, rethink, recreate itself. And the shamans and elders in the Amazon, where I work now with the Pachamama Alliance, say that the virus comes from the earth. It's not a punishment. It's an ally helping us interrupt and disrupt our species, which is living and consuming and to take you a page from your new work in a way that we're designing our own extinction. 80 to 100 years, our species will be extinct if we go at this rate. And not only will we be extinct, but we are taking so many species with us. And that to interrupt that, and have some vision, what I'm calling 2020 vision. This year began, beginning of the 2020s, began with a, an opportunity to re-vision, to re-look, to re-see, to reconsider who we are as human beings, to go inside, inside our houses, inside of our shelters, but to go inside, to force us to go inside. And I think we're in a birth canal. And, you know, pregnancy and birth, it's, it's painful. Not everybody makes it out of the birth canal. Not every mother makes it out of the labor process. So I call the Sophia century because I think this is the 100-year cycle when women will take 
our rightful role in co-equal partnership with men and the world will come back into balance. And not only will women, the emergence of women's leadership, feminine leadership, not men in skirts (laughs) or women in pants, but real feminine leadership, the kind that's rooted in the the life-giving power of motherhood, even if one hasn't given birth, a woman has that power to source life. We need to resource life. We need to resource our species. So I think that's what's happening. And that's one of the things I'm writing about. And I'll also say there's a, I think, important prophecy about the 21st century from the Cherokee people. And I don't know if you've heard me talk about this, but Cherokee people say the bird of humanity has two wings, a male wing and a female wing. A male wing has been fully extended and fully operational for centuries in all of us. But the female wing, the feminine wing, has been not yet fully extended, truncated somewhat, not yet expressed. So the male wing has become over-muscular, overdeveloped, and now violent to keep the bird of humanity afloat. And we've been flying in circles for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they say in the 21st century, the Sophia century, as I'm calling it, the feminine wing, the female wing in all of us, men and women, will fully extend. The male wing will begin to relax. And the bird of humanity will, for the first time in centuries, soar. I love that prophecy. It doesn't make anybody wrong. It encourages all of us to reimagine, to redirect, recreate, rethink, respect, regenerate the world and ourselves. And I think that is what we need to come out of the pandemic, the racial crisis, the economic crisis, the climate crisis. All these crises, to me, are one crisis from a mindset of you or me competition. Either you make it at my expense or I make it at your expense, the mindset of scarcity to come out of that mindset into a you and me paradigm where we both make it at no one's expense. And we, as Gandhi said, we don't take more than we need. There's enough for our need. There's not enough for our greed on this planet, but there's plenty for everyone to make it. And that, that call to find our yin energy, to move out of fear and into love, to design an economic system and a company like the one you're designing, I'm sure it must be consistent with what I'm saying. And this beautiful, these economic systems, Donut Economics, are you familiar with that? By Kate Raworth in London and other female economists, I call them feminomics, are creating economic models that are not based on competition. They're based on collaboration and generosity and flow rather than amount. Yeah, which, by the way, is the core of economics. I always refer to when President Bush during the economic downturn goes like, keep spending and everything will be okay. It's intriguing, but it's actually quite true. It's all about, can I enable my neighbor to continue to open their store? I'm not spending for the reason of acquisition. I'm spending for the reason of, I want life to flow. I want life to continue. Before I go back to money, I want to say that this is a call to action because it's one of my top priorities in my work is to say women need to be almost 
crazy about showing and bringing their feminine side to our world because without it, we're going to fail. And I've turned it into almost a duty. This is a call of duty that basically you need to not only show up, you need to show up and show up as you can be with your full feminine potential, with your empathy, with your ability to have intuition, with your ability to avoid violence, to avoid competition, and all of that that we need, that whole inclusiveness of seeing the world as part of us, not as a resource that we can consume to buy another car or get a bigger apartment. And I think the idea is without that, our universe, our life will fail. And so it's no longer a luxury. It's no longer a call for equality. It's almost a desperate call for help because without it, we don't survive. A hundred years, as predicted, is not a very long time. That's, you know, if you start to see the impact of that a few years before, we're talking about a generation and a half, two generations at most. To keep this short and sweet, we'll split my conversation with the wonderful Lynn Twist into two parts. Join me next week as Lynn continues to talk about her secret to feminine leadership and how she became so successful by truly being a woman. As she talks about the birth of humanity and what she thinks will happen to our future. And as she talks about the secret to a lifelong happy marriage. Before you go, remember, I'm trying to reach a billion people with a message of happiness. So if you found value and inspiration in my conversation so far with Lynn, please take time to add a positive review. If you're using Apple Podcast, share what you've heard with your friends and those that you love. Teach them what you've learned. Post about slow-mo in social media and spread the message. These are small actions on your side, but they can have a wide-reaching impact. Thank you for tuning in. Join us again on the next episode. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, SlowMo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember... There is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.